Obviously, there's been some sensational things already happening in this service, so I feel like I can just relax a little bit more. It's just the sermon at the end. Um, but uh, just because this will be the last uh, time that I talk to you before a few things change inside of the Mills household, I thought I'd give you just a quick update. Obviously, in the next month, we have a few changes that are happening. Uh, my wonderful wife, in three and a half weeks, will be popping out another baby. And we are extremely excited as you can tell, uh, this is my excitement face, which you're all very familiar with. Um, and I'm looking forward to meeting my son, and Catherine is looking forward to no longer being pregnant. Um, in fact, we're both looking forward to her no longer being pregnant. You have no idea the suffering a man goes through when his <laughs> wife is pregnant. I have no idea why you're laughing. <laughs> Uh, uh, in addition to that, uh, the week after this one, um, I'll be going through three exams for the end of uh, halfway through this year. Um, so we just appreciate your prayer um, through this time. We are very busy and just Catherine's in complicated pain and pregnancy stuff and I'm not available. So it makes things pretty difficult. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just prayer for us in that period. Um, but uh, thankfully we get to relax a little bit because we'll be going through Romans 7, which is known to being the most complicated and debated chapter in the entire Bible, which we will press on with. In fact, when I told some of my lecturers that this is what I was going to be preaching on, they verbally laughed at me, and one said that there is no way he would ever preach on this passage. Now, I don't know uh, if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but if there's anyone that's arrogant enough to say that they can do it and their lecturer can't, it is a student, particularly a Bible college student. So I'm not sure if I'm just more of a man than my lecturers or more of a fool, but we're going to step straight into it. Um, but first, let's pray uh, for as much divine help as possible. Father, we come before you, Lord, giving thanks this morning because we have seen just some incredible things, Lord, lives turning around, being changed and forever being stamped with the assurance that they are now Christ. We have seen that in Cole and we rejoice and join with him and maybe remember the time where you likewise took us through that same journey, being marked as Christ's. We are his now. And so, Father... This morning we pray, particularly as we go through Romans and reflecting on all these things that Paul is telling us, the marks of what it is to be a Christian, Lord, and to hold fast to them, to know that this is what our, who we are, what our identity is now. Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning, that you would illuminate the scripture to us, Lord, that we might rejoice in what we hear from Romans 7. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Romans 7 starts off straight away with its main point. If you remember from Josh's reading in verse 4, it says this, You have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to, to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. If you can remember, the last few weeks of Romans, Paul has been reminding us all of the transformative process and the benefits of being a Christian. At the beginning of Romans, he led us through several chapters, giving us detail as to the sinful and hopeless state of man. Romans 1, 29 to 32 
says that they were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and on and on and on Paul goes, making absolute certain that we know what the state of affairs is for mankind before Jesus. There is no doubt by the end of those first three chapters that man is in a bad state. Thankfully, uh, he does not leave us in that pit of despair for very long. But then continues... (laughs) (laughs) The mystery child. (laughs) Thankfully, he does not leave us in a pit of despair. (laughs) But like a mother... No, that's, that's not where we're going. But then continues to tell us that we are now in Christ marked as righteous, as, ju- as justified, as at peace with God because we have faith through Jesus Christ. He told us that Jesus represented us when he died on the cross. And it was because of this representation that we can say we have already been counted as one of those who have already died. And just as we were represented in his death, so also are we represented in his life, in the resurrection life, one that goes on forever. We are now bound to Jesus, his death and his life. This is in fact the very thing that we made such a big deal of this morning with Cole. Do you remember in Romans 6, 3-4, Mark preached on it last week, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That is amazing. And we have to say, that if there's anyone here this morning that does profess Jesus Christ, that does recognise that they have participated in both the death and the life as Jesus represents them, and you have not been baptised, and there are always some inside of a Baptist church, take the opportunity. What are you waiting for? If you are in that situation... Please, come and talk to myself, come and talk to Mark. We would be more than happy to obviously to baptise you. I'm happy to get up at 7.30 in the morning and set up the baptismal and vacuum all the millipedes out of it. (laughs) It is a wonderful thing and it is a massive profession of Jesus. You are saying that you believe and trust in him and that you live now in him. But... Paul has been telling us of the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing with us the details of what it means to have faith and to share in the death and life of Jesus forevermore. And Romans 7 starts off no different. Again, he is sharing a detail of the Christian life with us. When we become bound to Jesus, in death and life we become unbound to the law. Paul likens the relationship to a marriage. 
You cannot be married to two people at once. Before believing in Jesus as a non-Christian, we were all bound to the law. And if we're being honest, it was a particularly harsh marriage. The law that is being spoken of is the Mosaic law, the law that Moses received from God on Mount Sinai. It starts with the Ten Commandments, but then continues from there with a great number of religious laws given to Israel, how they are to have a relationship with God. They are not laws that we are over-familiar with. But I have to say that while growing up, there was not a point in my life that I can remember where I didn't know these Ten Commandments. You know the ones. You shall have no other gods but Yahweh. Do not make idols or worship them. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Respect your mother and your father. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false evidence against your neighbor and do not covet. I'm sure that they all ring a bell to to us. These were the commandments that were to be kept in order to have a relationship with God. And they're pretty simple, yeah? They are so simple to keep that in fact Israel had broken them before Moses even got down off the mountain. Their first commandment broken within moments. They are, of course, impossible for us to keep. Jesus takes our understanding to a new level with these laws on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he says that if anyone even has hatred in their heart for another person, they are considered to have murdered them. Or if anyone has lusted, they are considered to have committed adultery. It only gets easier and easier to keep them. We must keep these laws in order to have a relationship with God to be considered holy and just and good. Who could possibly do that? This, of course, is a Sunday school answer. No one. The law does not bring with it salvation. Being bonded to the law, as with a marriage, is harsh. Look at the description that Paul gives it, gives to the law. It holds us captive It arouses sin. We were slaves to it and it results in the fruit of death. Nothing about this is appealing. If you saw fruit of death at the supermarket, you would not pick it up. (laughs) It is a terrible thing to be bonded to the law. There is no salvation in it. We cannot keep it and so we are doomed by it. Praise God then that we were reminded by Paul that in placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we die to it. We die to the law. It no longer has a hold on us, but instead Jesus does. And how much easier it is to be bound to Jesus instead of a list of commandments that we must do in order to maintain a relationship with him. He keeps us counted as righteous, justified and good. And we are told that we simply need to have faith in him and he takes care of the rest. Hearing this news is like at the end of a hard day getting to sit back into a comfy hammock with a cold beer on a warm summer's afternoon. You can just take a load off. Relax. That is good news. We have Jesus. But how are we left thinking of the law? So far, Paul has said, what has Paul said about it? It holds us captive 
It arouses our sin. We are slaves to it, and it results in the fruit of death. After hearing that description, just raise your hand if you think the law is bad. Interesting. From that description, you all think it's good. (laughs) Or you know more. Paul is thinking, uh, Paul has indeed painted this in a very, uh, painted the law in very dark colours. We are led to think that the law is not a good thing. But uh, let's ask this, and probably what you're already thinking, God gave us the law, does God give us bad things? Is the law good or bad? Okay, here we go. Verses 7 to 13 reveal that Paul has realised that the people in Rome that he is speaking to, that he is writing to, is asking these same questions, particularly the Jews. They, like many of us, grew up knowing that the law is a good thing. Paul starts by asking the question, what then should we say? Is the law... Uh, sorry, that the, what then should we say? That the law is sin... By no means. The law is not sin. What it is, is a revelation to reveal what sin is. We all know the feeling, don't we? Maybe when you're asleep and suddenly there is a noise in the house that doesn't belong there. There are the creaks, the fridge humming, the fish tank bubbling, bubbling, and maybe your eldest daughter saying, No, Connie, leave me alone. While she sleeps, all of these are acceptable noises, but suddenly there is a bang or a scrape that doesn't belong and you are wide awake. And the fastest and most uh, most sensible thing to do would be to get up and immediately check out what it is. Of course, you usually don't do that. You spend the next 10 minutes debating whether it's worth the people that may have broken into your house stealing everything you have just to get back to sleep. The law is like turning on the light. It reveals the situation for what it is. Paul says, I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It reveals the situation, but it is not limited to revealing what we should and should not do, but our own spiritual state. Paul said again, I once thought I was alive. I thought I was doing well, ticking the boxes, kicking the goals and having a great time doing it. Then I turned the light on and found out that I was dead and that sin reigned in my life. The law is a harsh light that reveals everything. Nothing stays hidden and it shows us the truth. When bound to the law... We are all found to be dead. That is what Paul is saying. The law also, however, affords opportunity for sin. Going back to the illustration of turning on the light when you hear that foreign sound in the night. What else happens when you turn on the light to find out that your house is filled with thieves? You make their job infinitely easier. Because it is far easier to identify and steal everything of value when the lights are turned on. How much easier it is to steal everything. 
You can see what's worth taking and now the owners know that you're there. You don't even have to be quiet about it. In fact, the more aggressive, the better. My guess is that a few people won't be sleeping tonight after this description. (laughs) Paul says that the law also has this effect on sin. It wakes it up, it increases its activity. It seizes the opportunity that the law provides to turn on, to turn you to sin and in so doing, kill you. Does the law then kill you, is Paul's next question. Does what is good cause what is bad? The answer is again, no. It is not the light's fault that you were robbed or consequently killed. No one ever blames the light for murder. It was the thieves in the night. It was sin taking opportunity. What Paul is doing is making darn sure that we understand that although the law is something that we must be freed from in order to be with Jesus, it is not the law itself that is causing the issue, but sin that sits so closely at hand with it. It is why being freed from the law is such a delight, for it also means freedom from the sin that sits so closely to it. I would say now that the law has been wholly defended by Paul. It is not bad. He has done a good job. We know that the law is good. It reveals the truth to us and our actions, and that it but it also does wake up sin and give it opportunity. And at no point does it save us from sin. But we cannot blame the law for the actions of sin or for what it reveals of our own spiritual state. It simply reveals. It turns the lights on. Paul pushes on again, now into the third section of chapter 7. This one again is different from the last two where in the first Paul spoke of the hope of being separated from the impossible law of being bound and secured in the death and life of Jesus. In the second part, he defends the law, showing us that it is good and that it is a holy light that reveals our death and sin, as well as sin's closeness to the law. Now in the third part, we're invited into an intensely personal space with Paul where he confesses a frustration as a Christian. It is in this state that all Christians we are aware of. It doesn't take much for us to join in with Paul, with his annoyance, in saying, I do not do what I want to do. How often we say the very same things, if not with our lips, at least with our hearts. I want to be obedient, but I cannot. I want to worship God, but I can't. I still harbour feelings for idols. I want to do all that I can to please God, but instead I do only the things that seem to offend Him. How frustrating this is. But why is it frustrating? Why do we find Paul driven to the point of calling out at the end of the chapter, wretched man that I am? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Because we should be free from sin and the law now. Isn't this just what Paul had finished saying? Did he not just say that when you believe in Jesus, you die to the law and are joined with him? Yet we find ourselves here in a frustrated point, 
in anguish, possibly angry, that the freedom that we were promised has not been delivered. Paul says that it feels as though there is now a war within him. Two wills wanting to do opposite things. One desires only to serve God and the other does not. How does this situation make sense? How can Paul at once say that we are free from the law but equally complain that he's still bound to it? In the opening verse it says, The law is spiritual and I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. Paul is pointing out the fleshly substance of man. The law is a thing of divine origin. Humanity is a thing of flesh, of the earth. And although Paul's spirit has changed sides, although his identity has shifted, the fleshly substance of him has not yet experienced death in Jesus. It is not caught up to the reality of who he is now. And so there is a war of wills taking place, a divide within him. His flesh still operates under the law. And so while there is a war taking, uh, sorry, while his identity is free in Jesus. This is why he can say that he is a slave under the law still and not contradict him saying that he has died to it. But what this means is that his fleshly portion is still experiencing the harsh light of the law and is still providing opportunity for sin to revive and increase. It is important to know that Paul's desires here, though, are for the Lord. Like our desires, they are now set on the things of, things of God. He says that he now delights in the law of God. He is free. But despite this, Paul says that he can do no good. Everything he does is contaminated by sin. It is clear, then, why Paul cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? Waging of wars, of wills within him. And I think we can join with him in that. Your frustration as a Christian is not a failing, but a part of the life that we have here on earth. Do not become downtrodden or think that you are a failure because you struggle to obey God. Paul did too. I do too. Mark does too. The person to your left and the right does too. We all do and it is a fact of who we are now. But one day we will die and we will be given new bodies and the war of wills will be over. We will be able to not just want to obey, but able to. We will be able to delight in the fullness of the freedom that Paul has promised and praise God for that. But we are not there yet. And our current reality is a hard one. But look at the sentence that Paul says after crying out, Who will save me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Never again will we be ignorant of our sin. Never again will we be totally enslaved to the law. If you are frustrated this morning with your obedience to Jesus, be reminded that while we still struggle in the here and the now, our security is assured. In the first verse of chapter 8, it says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. This is who we are now. Even though there is frustration, our security is assured in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are the start and the finish, the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, when we think of those terms, we think of suddenly cosmic movements. But even in the movement of our own souls, Lord, you are the start and the finish. You both created us and you're bringing us to completion. You brought us new life in your Son. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning that is experiencing frustration because they desire to do your will, desire to make you happy, but still struggle with the flesh. Lord, that they would hold tightly to the knowledge of who you are and what you have done, that it is permanent and unrevocable. They are now your children, assured by the blood of Jesus Christ. They have participated in the death and now enjoy the life forevermore with Jesus Christ, your Son. We give thanks to you and glory to you for that. Father, forgive us of the times that we forget it. Forgive us of the times where we become steeped in our own condemnation. And remind us of that, that verse from chapter 8, that there is now no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen. If you would like prayer for anything, please come down the front. Mark and I are available. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, Find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.